Can you hear there me you now? There you go. I can hear you now. Good. Verizon, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I can indeed. I can indeed. Welcome, John Paul. Do you like John Paul? Do you like John or do you like JP? Uh, most people say JP or John Paul. Either way, I'd say I'm a chameleon there. Anyone but Paul because that's somebody else. Yes, that's your dad, right? That's right. <laughs> you know, um, I had a friend in high school named JP, so that's easy for me. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I, I think um, Seth Resnick and Mike Newler at uh, Canon um, did that to me years ago. And, and people in the studio started using it. Oh, this is going to stick, isn't it? So Yeah. Hey, that's better than the nickname I got stuck with in high school. Mm, yeah, those. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice I'm to see stoked. you. I'm Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was a million years ago. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't remember me and I wouldn't be in hurt or insulted or anything. <laughs> and we're that old, aren't we? Oh, uh, yeah. I've had two kids since I was in Maine. Now, I came up to your workshop for your fine art printing too. rented a place. My mother had uh, just had a bout with uh, uh, hospice that uh, she needed to kind of get away from yeah. put her in the cabin and rode my bike to your to your workshop it was a beautiful week it was sublime it good, really was good good yeah Maine is yeah. a special place yeah it is i was just checking out your 3d um shows of your work tell everybody a little bit about what you do because i think you have a really unique niche and um i was looking at these 3d uh the 3d spinning images of your gallery in Maine. Oh, it yeah. looks just like I remember it. It's so uh, peaceful and beautiful. <laughs> Good. You know, that, that is the space that I live in every day. Uh, when I'm, <laughs> Lucky when I'm bastard. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's really nice when you can align your personal life and goals with uh, your professional. And, and sometimes the professional makes excuses to make the, the life you want to make. Isn't so, that the dream? Yeah, it is. You know, and so when I get frustrated with galleries, I do my own show. Nice. Uh, and, and it has allowed me to be uh, somebody who works better with galleries because I've already done my show. And then we can do our thing together in their space. Uh, but the more important thing is uh, that space, I consider it a vacuum. There's so many square feet. I can hang anywhere from 15 large prints to 30 smaller prints. And I have a deal with myself only new work. So Ooh. nature abhors a vacuum. Uh-huh. It means I got to fill that space every year and it keeps me productive. Nice. It also means that I have to put together a show, not yeah. um, just assemble a random number of images and hope somebody else will come up with a statement. I have to make the statement. Yeah. But then I put myself on the spot. Not only do I understand how to market an event like that, which makes me more able to deal with galleries and more professionally. Yeah. Um, but also I uh, put myself on the spot and make myself do a gallery talk and mm -hmm. force myself to say something about the work. In other words, before the doors are open, I've considered, you know, what's my line? What is this all about? How can yeah. I offer points of entry for people? But I learn a lot about the work that way as well. And then there, that's always followed up by a question and answer period. Yeah. And the questions that people ask me help me a great deal too. It's, oh, people are getting that. Oh, that's not quite clear. Oh, I never thought of it in that way. Oh, that's a great way of saying that. I, I get a lot of great feedback just by talking with people all weekend long. Sometimes we'll do it two weekends, but the most part, it's a one weekend event. 
Yeah. And we get anywhere from a lot of two weekend events. I think our highest number was a little over 1500 people passed through in about four or five days. Holy moly. That's awesome. You know, it's, it's pretty cool when people will come all the way up from Boston, three and a half hours away to see this yeah. event, but it is an event. And yeah. it's really gotten across to me that seeing prints is an event. Most of the time we're swiping yeah. left or right. Yeah. Um, it's rare that we actually see prints, much less our own prints all dressed up. Yeah. Um, and your prints are so spectacular because they're big and you really do a nice job printing them. The subtleness to your prints is, is just spectacular. Um, I love that. Your work is focused on the environment but it breaks a lot of the rules of composition and traditional landscape photography, if you will. Yep. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your background just to give some people some context? Maybe people don't know who you are. Um, your work is like, you've been to Antarctica and you've um, photographed these icebergs and these halos and you've got all this color, but how did you kind of come to this voice? I had to live a life to get here. <laughs> um, part of that voice was always there. Part of that has uh, come out of influences from other people and the influence mm -hmm. of the experiences that I've, that I've had. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it'd be one thing to think that uh, somebody is talented. They're born that way. They're born with a voice. And it's just a matter of letting it out. Like uh, Michelangelo could see the angel inside that block. And all he had to do was chip the stuff away. It's there a nice myth. It's a nice well, story. Yeah. And it's a nice perspective. You know, stories are good for perspectives. But if we think that's the end of the story, well, I think there's always another story or more to the story. Um, you know, I think to a certain degree, part of that is true. Um, my connection to the natural world has been with me since I was tiny. It mm -hmm. didn't hurt that I've always lived very close to it in the Connecticut woods or out in the Irish landscape or in the woods in Maine or out in the desert in New Mexico. You know, rarely, aside from going to college, lived in urban environments. Um, I didn't know you went to Yale. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did that. I did a thing. I, I did my time at jail. I mean, Yale. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, and, and dad... I have a love-hate relationship with the institution, but I learned a great mm -hmm. deal from it and probably wouldn't be the writer that I am today had I not also studied literature as well as art at Yale. Um, mm. In fact, part of that was a bureaucratic mess up. Um, I was the honors student for our humanities course yeah. in high school, which was our senior English. But he was really one of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. You know, you kind of count the great teachers who really shift the course of your life, the direction, and kind of open your eyes to another way of being or deeper way of being. And, mm -hmm. and Bob Kurth at Santa Fe Prep in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, was one of those people. Mm. Uh, but the school called Senior English uh, Humanities. So when I got to Yale, they said, well, you haven't had Senior English, so you can't take Lit 101. <laughs> <laughs> and I was green enough and in awe enough of the institutions that, well, okay, what can I take? Well, you can take Lit 1. It's a remedial writing course. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Just out of dumb luck, I ran into one of the other best teachers I've ever had in my entire academic career, Jonathan Friedman, who was really teaching us a writing course, one of the best writing courses I had in my academic career. 
And um, he said, hey, kid, you know, you got some talent. If you're serious about this, you know, every one of the colleges has a writing tutor. Take every paper you write, no matter what it is. Doesn't matter whether it's physics or it's poetry. Take your take your papers to your writing tutor. You'll learn a lot. So I took yeah. his advice. Um, they were fantastic. So sometimes you have these little mistakes or bumps or detours in your life that aren't maybe they're not really detours, but they're just uh, opportunities that yeah. look like obstacles at, at the first time. So I then I, I got I got wise the next semester. Yeah. I really wanted to take this modern poetry course, but it was only for, get this, seniors, mm. English majors. You know, if you were a senior English major, you could take this course. It was, it was R.W.B. Lewis teaching poetry, he brought Robert Penn Warren in to read his poetry. It was fabulous. Well, he didn't ask if I was senior and I didn't tell him. I, I caught my A and we were all Snuck good. In. I just quietly sat there and he didn't tell me to leave and we had a great time. Nice. You know, I had a professor once in a college painting professor that said there's only happy accidents. And, you know, that's another thing I didn't know is that you were to painting. Yeah. Yeah. So when um, was the first time that you picked up a a camera? You're trained in painting, but you're known for your photography. How did that transition happen? Um, You could blame it on Photoshop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will. Photoshop is the gateway drug. I, I do. It was kind of like a Godfather 2 moment. You know, I knew that if I threw my glove into the ring of photography, I'd always be measured by the accomplishments of my father. Right. So it wasn't something I went into lightly, but I thought, you know, this tool is just perfect for me. It's exactly like the tool that I saw them doing separations for Elliot Porter's book, Intimate Landscapes. Mm, love uh, Elliot. Skytex machines. Mm. Yeah. Gorgeous. But then in those days, back in the mid-70s, that technology cost millions of dollars. Mom called the Cytex machines million-dollar coloring books. Uh, <laughs> how am I ever going to get a hold of a million dollars? Yeah. And then in 1990, there was a Macintosh. It was a Quadra and ah. Photoshop One. And there was my million-dollar coloring book. I mean, my second mortgage. And it didn't <laughs> cost a million dollars. <laughs> um, so it allowed me to blend the photographic background and the painting background. I had been studying photography, not seriously until I was in college. Mm-hmm. And I thought, it well, I've got a great teacher, my father, and he was. Uh, I can learn how to make good reference for photographs because I want to do some surreal work, but I really want to take what's in my mind's eye and, and make it uh, clear. Yeah. Not only for the public, for myself as well, to develop those. Mm-hmm. I remember visiting when I was studying with dad in the summers, we, I took one semester off and we, um, I helped him teach a workshop in Ireland and we mm. visited an old family friend of Fergus Burke, who was the uh, photographer through the Abbey theater. Oh. Uh, so you're, you're going into the family business, are you? Uh, well, who are your influences? Uh, mm, Blake, Durer, Bosch. No, no, no. Photographers. Oh, uh, Jerry Olsman. Oh, pick another. He doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, you know, can you imagine saying that post Photoshop? But this was really pre Photoshop, and it was just a fascinating collision. Um, I love the I love the accent you do. You do it really well. <laughs> Spent some time over there. If, if if you're actually Irish, then it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the first time you went to Antarctica and you started to blend environmentalism in with your photography? Well, Antarctica wasn't really uh, the first time I started to blend environmentalism. That, okay. that I, have, I have to blame or credit 
um, you know, one of my heroes was Elliot Porter, who mm. went to Antarctica long before most people were on a National Science Foundation grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom did, she designed and helped curate the book that he did, Antarctica. And oh, so when cool. I saw this late 70s, early 80 year old going down there several times uh, and, and talking about it, showing photographs of green icebergs and you know, some of them roll and pick up a lot of algae. Um, I was, I was hooked. I, like, I want to go there too. And a lot of things happen around Elliot, Scitex machines, Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> but that dream didn't come true until about 2005. But his, all the conversations we had during those productions at, at dinner, um, my mom used to get into pie baking contests with him. And, you know, he, he Elliot was, Porter um, baked pies? Yeah, made him great apple pie. He was New Englander, so you know, was you know, cooked a little longer than moms. Didn't have as much lemon rind, a little bit more brown sugar. You know, they had, mm. they had just a different kind of taste, right? I mean, You're making me hungry. I know. <laughs> I just made an apple pie the other day, and it didn't set up right. Right. <laughs> I, I overcooked the two that I baked a few days ago. <laughs> Your mother would be horrified. Well, just don't tell her, right? I won't. <laughs> At any rate, um, there, there would be times where Elliot would just push me as he, and I really appreciated this because here I was a teenager and here's this late seventies, early eighties gentleman, very distinguished, not stuffy, but accomplished and, and intellectually rigorous. I really appreciated his keen wit and he's pushing me and he really wants to know what a teenager thinks. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, you're too young to have a conversation with, not at all. He wanted right. to know what I was thinking. He probably saw me as part of the part of the solution to the the challenges we all face. The people he wanted to inspire. So he would yeah. lay on lay it on heavy. He says, "Well, you know, it's your generation that's going to decide whether you hand on a habitable environment or not." Ooh, right. No pressure, Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I saw Ansel Adams and Elliot Porter doing such great work with environmental advocacy through photography. But I also saw them uh, get disappointed. Elliot mm. considered his a place no one knew, a eulogy, that it got published too late to do anything about the Glen Canyon. And, mm. uh, you know, certainly Ansel had successes, but also many disappointments. And I just felt, okay, so there are a lot of people following in their footsteps. Could there be another way to expand this dialogue, this um, uh, way of interacting with an essential issue that... Uh, we're, we've been dealing with all along as, as a species, but now we're at a critical point with it. Yeah. And uh, I continue to look for that. Um, I've just written 25% of a book on mindfulness practices in nature. Oh, um, cool. I can't three, wait to see it. I have your Antarctic book and I have your um, Photoshop book and I have two of your prints yeah. and um, your, your dad and son edition and uh, one of your prints from the workshop but yeah. i'll be very excited to see uh, the art in in mindfulness because i just completed um three years of enso paintings you know mm. where you draw yeah. a circle yes yeah. so peaceful but i was combining <laughs> it with like drips like modern painting and you know street art and then have you seen this trend with line work where you know some people are calling it like wormholes hmm you are using a lot of geometry in your work now. I've been watching your work evolve. Yeah. And um, your work, you know, had that kind of 
Ulsman feeling in the beginning. And now it's become a little bit more, dare I say, um, Zen or uh, like it, some of your aesthetic reminds me a little bit more Japanese meditation um, mm. now. And I noticed that you're uh, still teaching, still out there working around. So we're talking about art and what you're making. Where do you see your art going and, and how do you evolve your art? Besides just writing. I, I love that about writing, by the way, uh, writing about your work. So, so influences like- and art and writing. Yeah, there's like two or three big questions in there. <laughs> there is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help myself sometimes. I get in these conversations with other artists and I just want to know everything. Right. Um, short term, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of collaboration with publishers and or self-publishing effort. Because while there have been uh, Mad Cloud catalogs and blurb books, there's never really been a monograph of my fine art. Mm. Uh, and I think for, to be effective, this nonfiction book uh, probably needs to be published in standard channels, even though the opportunities for publishing, self-publishing are uh, greater and easier than ever before. Uh, I, I want to reach a wider other audience, expand the audience. And so I think collaborating with somebody makes the most sense. Um, I think it's fabulous that you're doing art as meditation um so you're looking towards traditional publishing channels i i love this idea so will it be accessible do you think to the general public there's zero point of working with a traditional publisher unless it is accessible um the publishing industry has been in crisis for more than a decade uh and i can't say that my my relationship with publishers has been an easy one Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think it's been challenged for quite a long time. I've, I've watched Elliot change. I mean, he was disappointed when the run on American Places was, uh, I don't remember it was ten or 20,000, but he was disappointed because his previous books, they were going to publish 40,000. Now a distribution of 3,000 is a wide distribution. So we're talking about the mass marketing to 3,000 when many people in their social networks have hundreds of thousands. I mean, 30,000 people get my newsletter every month thousand people every month hit my every day hit my website Mm -hmm. so is is the beautifully printed book really mass distribution it used to be before the web but now i think we have to reconsider the function and purpose of of a finely produced book and there are many ways of doing that and i think in many cases we're going back to very limited edition expensive um books that are going into collections or are meant for a specific audience. I remember when Robert Glenn Ketchum, who also heard Elliot's story about his Glen Canyon portrait being a eulogy, um, he worked tirelessly to make sure that his book Tongas got into the hands of senators and testified before Congress to help that become a national park. Now that's effective. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, it's a really cool story. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, you know, all bets are off. We have more opportunity than ever before. And people are saturated, oversaturated. So how do you create an experience for people that, that they really connect with? And are you creating with the people who are most receptive to it, who can do the most with it, who might pass that kind of activity or information or mindset forward or it might inspire them to go and do their own thing and they really will do something rather than just consume it and move on to the next thing to consume 
Right. You know, maybe mass distribution and huge audiences really isn't the goal, but maybe a targeted audience where it's really meaningful and they're able to go and move the needle further forward, like Elliot really was in many ways, you know, passing the torch to the younger generation for so many of us, to me, to Robert Long Ketchum, to others. Uh, how, do, how do we pass the torch to other people, regardless of their age? It's not just a generational thing. Yeah. JP, you know, you said something that kind of resonated me with, with me there, and it leads us really nicely into the idea of product. So we've been talking about your art, right, and how you're evolving it and how you want to do this um, book for art as sort of meditation, and but you've also done a lot of fine art. And so as a product, I often talk about in the appeals about how important it is for creatives to have um, different revenue streams and different price points, like a price ladder. So you have an introductory um, mass market type appeal thing that's, you know, accessible to people, maybe, you know, 10 to 20 to $50. And then you have something at the next level and the next level. And a lot of the artists I talk to do commission work is kind of the top level. Hmm. Now your work is in museums. And I was fascinated to see when I was doing a little bit of digging that um, the American museum, I'd have to look over here, but they're collecting one of everything that you make. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Well, I, I want to know when, when Shannon Parrish approached me and said, we want to do that. Uh, they also wanted my first computer, my first copy of Photoshop, the first what? digital camera, because they have a large collection of uh, technology in photography. They have my first iPhone. Um, <laughs> Does it still have your fingerprints on it? Will they be able to clone you from your... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it has a little spit, a little bit of fingerprints. will be able to clone you in the future. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Right. <laughs> I just thought it was so interesting that they took such a broad view. Uh, yeah. That, to me, it is the most interesting collection of my work. There are other museums who have several prints, uh, but nobody has uh, the breadth uh, that... Shannon assembled for uh, the Smithsonian. Um, and, and so I continue to look for uh, collectors who will donate and expand that collection. And as my career grows, uh, there are other times where I'll just send her things. You know, I started doing these mad cloud books, you know, just as a way of producing quick $10 catalogs for my exhibits that could be customized for other people's venues as well. Now, what is this? What's what, that? what, 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 what are you doing? Mad cloud books, huh? Yeah, Wait, you know, they're like little soft cover magazines like uh, yeah. Blurb. Blurb ultimately bought MagCloud, but MagCloud is cheaper. Um, their quality is slightly better. Okay. Uh, and, and they're really accessible. So if you want to produce a, a catalog of your work, 24 images in a little square format for under 10 bucks, uh, you can do it. And I do. And you as the fine artist do that. I make it a part of my regular practice. It helps me develop a series. I work in series, bodies of work, ways of right. Seeing, right? So I don't really consider a series complete, I don't mean finished, but complete until I have enough images to create one of these catalogs. And one of the, you know, it's a book. So it forces you to think about a sequence, a beginning, middle, and mm -hmm. end. It forces you to look for gaps. There needs to be a kind of an arc, like in a poem or a story. You know, you yeah. start somewhere and you kind of move somewhere else where the, that could even be emotionally. It doesn't have to be literal. And you have to write something about it too, even if it's just one page. You try and right. write something interesting. So it forces you to do a lot of great work that will help create a better understanding of what you're doing, 
better understanding where you're going and greater depth in what you actually produce. So this little book is like 10 bucks. It's totally accessible. So that's like the bottom of the product ladder. Is there the same images that you use in your gallery shows in your annual gallery show and main them? Yeah. Do you synchronize those? Yep. <sighs> Brilliant. Right. So if I finished a body of work and that's what's being featured in that exhibit, there's the catalog and people can order them online. So I don't have to keep an inventory. But actually, the bottom of the chain is a free ebook that I give away, which I've started actually just giving these things away. If you got the last art newsletter collector's alert, which Mm -hmm. I've done once, twice, three times a year for the last Mm -hmm. five, 10 years, but I'm going to go quarterly at least this year. And I'm just giving these ebooks away. And what do people do with them? Well, the ebook actually lets you A, experience the work, B, read it. You don't have to pay Mm -hmm. the $10, you just download it. But you can also click on the images and it'll take you right to my gallery. It could be a, a post, it could be a video, or it could mm-hmm. just be that image that goes right into the gallery where you can find more information about that image and purchase it right there. So oh, it's one, brilliant. one click, you go into the, the gallery that allows you to, to purchase. You know, in marketing, they talk about opt-ins. And there's this big trend now where you go and you get a free downloadable PDF in in exchange for your email. Um, But not many artists are doing that. That's brilliant. But it also, the fact that it links to your online store is fantastic. Yeah. 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 And it's accessible. I love it. I love it. So what is your full range of, of products that you kind of make and do? Uh, there'd be like a free ebook. There'd be a $20 ebook. There'd be uh, uh, the DVDs are a little long in the tooth. They're about $70, uh, but we'll probably have some video content coming up. I have one of those. I used them in classes. Great, great DVDs. Good. I'm glad you like it. I remember talking to David Deshemin a few years ago and said, he, he sent me in one of his latest books and, you know, signed it nicely for me. Said, oh, you know, what can I give you back? You, you want a set of my DVDs? He said, JP, I don't even have a DVD player. I'm sorry. I'd love it, but I, I'm like, okay, it's, it's time to move that online and fresh it up. But then there's yeah. only so much of me to go around. Yeah. Um, you know, 2021. You are so productive. So productive. I can just come up with so many ideas, so many things I want. And I've, I've actually been uh, spending the last couple of days reviewing all of my projects, missions, goals, actions, plans for the next year, reviewing how the last few years have gone, redoing all of that for the planning. And I just, <laughs> uh, you come up with so many ideas and then you've got to get a look at what kind of time you can actually spend and what, yeah. what, what is most important for the coming year um, with your longer term goals in mind. You know, if I didn't have longer term goals of, I was tired of being the Photoshop jockey and teaching the digital printing courses at all of the workshop programs that are out there. I was the first at Maine, first at Santa Fe, et cetera. Yeah. But they never let me out of the lab. And I feel like <laughs> and I've got more to teach, you know, about storytelling, yeah. about vision, about exposure, about land, yeah. mindfulness. Um, so I kind of had to make my own way. And I uh, started shifting the brand a little bit and offering my own workshops out in the field. Uh-huh. Uh, those things don't happen unless you have a plan. I know so many of my friends, photographers, and it's, it's about the spontaneous moment. You can't predict anything. It's all about the light. It's about that decisive moment, which you know only happens in the blink and you just have to be ready. Well, <laughs> tell it to Annie Leibowitz, tell it, <laughs> tell it to yeah. Jerry Olsman, tell it to, there are different ways of working. That is absolutely a very valid way of working and it's worked brilliantly for Jay Maisel. 
but it makes it harder for him to curate his own books. He usually needs somebody else to curate it, much mm -hmm. like Elliot did. I, I think these days we're called as creatives to do more of the pieces of that production from oh, yeah. making the images to curating it and maybe even getting in there and designing it if you if you needed or finding somebody that you can work with. But we have to be picture editors at the same time. We have to be yeah. people who plan our projects because the old ways of doing things just aren't being done anymore. Um, yeah. Well, we're solopreneurs. You yeah. got to do it all. You got to be the accountant and the web designer and the graphic designer and the book layout artist. <laughs> and at some point- You got to be the podcast your... host. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to make this stuff really easy and get good content. If it's not easy, you got to partner with somebody who's got those skills to help you make it happen. So you save the time to be able to do the other things. I love that idea of partnering. I hear again and again that one of the tips to success in the arts is networking. And partnering is really just networking. It's, it's just the term networking people I think are scared of, but it's really just making friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think Austin Kleon's been using this word seniors. Well, you know, people have a what? genius, and then also people have a seniors. In other words, some people are natural born networkers. I forget, I think Malcolm Gladwell calls them connectors. Okay, right? yeah. In, in tipping point. Uh, and, and so he's, the, the word seniors, it's not Austin's, but he's revived it. And, and I think, mm -hmm. well, is some people are really good about finding different communities, connecting different communities, connecting different people. And, um, you know, uh, how are you going to say, uh, making sure that those connections or finding ways to make those connections really vital and productive. You know, you Brilliant. maintain them. Um, I think that's actually separate from collaborating well with people. Yeah. Uh, you know, to actually create something together requires yet another set of social skills and a, and a certain lack of control freakedness, <laughs> but also the ability to compromise. Yeah. Sync, being able to sync up with people and, and mm -hmm. being able to select people who really are going to bring something to the table and can execute it. Because mm. right? if you partner with somebody you can't execute it, look, look what happened to Chase Jarvis on his app. His development team didn't see what could happen. Chase had what he feels should have been the next Instagram, but his mm. team got in the way. Bummer. Yeah, yeah. So I want to touch on your planning process, but let's save that for, remind me to talk about your planning process here under Automate, because I think we're at presentation and I want some of your advice on presentation because when I came to your workshop, you hauled out these portfolios that were like, like four feet right. wide, <laughs> this big. <laughs> <laughs> Not this big. <laughs> They're this big, and they can They're fit on big, the table. Well, I'm small, so to me, they were enormous. I was like, "Whoa!" Because you had a 13 by 19 print matted in right. them, right. and that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody mat um, a print in a portfolio. Hmm. Which just took it to that like next notch. Like, I mean, I'd seen portfolios. You go to Dick Blick or Michaels or whatever, and they got the traditional black leather portfolio with the plastic sleeves, you know, and you slide your 13 by 19 in. Yeah. And that looks cool. Sure. It looks good. 
but yours blew me away. And then I sat there and watched you sell work at your workshops. And that got me thinking. I was like, started running the numbers and I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. This man is brilliant. Not only is this the most gorgeous display I've ever seen, I'm surrounded by amazing, beautiful work in this refurbished barn, you know, whitewashed walls and ceiling, white furniture, wood, wood side tables. And then you plunk this museum worthy portfolio down. It was stunning. So tell me about how you learned about presentation and how important it is to you and you think it is to an artist. Sure. Um, first, <laughs> first, I watch how other people did it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I am lucky. I, I saw my mom produce uh, Ernst Haas's uh, creation portfolio, many of Elliot's portfolios, many of my dad's portfolios. And these were actual, you know, beautifully crafted limited edition boxes of several prints. You know, I'd seen yeah. Ansel Adams as a kid, you know, dad's teaching out at the Ansel Adams gallery uh, where the Ansel Adams workshops out in Yosemite and Ansel is bringing out his portfolios. He's selling portfolios. Yeah. So I'd seen people present that. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting to look at how Bill Clift, William Clift presents his prints always one at wow. a time. So you have this intense, come close experience, but that's, you know, that's part of it. You, the glass is away, you know, you're there with the artist, you're, you're wearing the, the museum gloves. Yeah, it says handle with care. It also says, I respect this. This is precious, take care with this, I care. But just putting together the portfolio and dressing it up and then all of the things that go into making a book, it's the same kind of thing with a portfolio, a little bit different format, but you have to think about a sequence and you have to think about um, selecting your best work and, and how best to present it and, and how much to say. And that's always, that's a conversation, which is also really special. That, that again is, that's a different event than hanging work up on the wall and letting people walk through. And they said, that was nice. Presenting a portfolio is an intimate experience with one or maybe 10 people, but you don't present a portfolio to an audience of hundred people. You, you can't get around that. You need, you gather around. It's a kind of a communal experience. And so it becomes mm. a conversation as well. They ask questions, but that's also from a marketing standpoint, since we're talking about marketing, that's, that's a way of deepening the connection. Yeah. It's not just about telling people what's on your mind. It's not just about hearing their feedback and learning. All of that is great. Um, it's also helping people make a connection. And, and so, you know, when mostly you're handing the prints and then sometimes you hand a print to somebody and they get to hold it. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's like taking ownership. That's way beyond where we're beta testing Lightroom version one, where you know you guys are going to get the free version and then the where you upgrade, you have ownership yeah. of this thing. No, you're holding this thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, in sales, they talk about putting it in somebody's hand. Yeah. I met a salesman at a conference a couple of years ago and he said, well, you put it in their hand and then you ask them for the sale. Right. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, you put the product in the person's hand and then you say something simple like, can I ring that up for you? Sure. Can I put it in a bag for you? And I was like, really? You, you just <laughs> like that? <laughs> you do have to ask, but there, there are many ways of asking. And, yes. But putting it in I, the I hand. To just overdo it. I just, I try and create just an irresistible value proposition to get people in. They want this. They have a special experience. This helps them remember that it means something to them. Yeah. You know, I, think, I think by the time all that has built up, not just a, here, hold this. Oh yeah. You just bought it. No, it's not that. It's, it's, no. about, it's about developing a relationship and extending that relationship and, and making it more meaningful and more personal. Yeah. And that is a perfect segue into educating your audience 
I mean, it's all about the story, right? You're talking about connection. Um, and uh, Maria Foley uh, with the B school. I don't know if you've seen her all over the internet advertising, you know, B school, B school. She tells a great story about buying a rug in like Morocco and how they went and looked at these and the guy brings them, you know, coffee and <laughs> this and that. And she says, we came back to the guy because he looked us deadpan in the face and said, you're going to buy from me because I told you a story. <laughs> <laughs> But it resonated with me, too. I think story is so integral experience of and that's what people want to be able to share afterwards as well. Is that story, that memory. Yeah. Well, you you hear this in the twelve million dollar shark as well at the very high end. (laughs) You know, some of the collectors say, oh, I just bought a Gagosian. You mean that Mondrian? Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you the story. (laughs) Or let me tell you a story about Mondrian or, you know. Some of the collectors don't even know who Mondrian was. They just purchased because it would make a good story and it would make a good impression to their their, mm-hmm. their peers, right? Mm-hmm. And they knew they would get an ROI on it. Right. Um, so, it, you know, all kinds of stories, all kinds of reasons. But boy, right. um, I went into uh, a Moroccan rug shop swearing I would not, not, not <laughs> buy a rug. Really? Uh, I bought a rug. Those guys <laughs> are brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, do tell. Man, if I could import <laughs> that guy to help me sell my art. Holy smoke. <laughs> I just, now I got to go to Morocco and get swindled to buy a rug. I need, I need me a rug story. The performance we got was unbelievable. I almost want to call it high art. It was it was an extraordinary experience that lasted several days. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, this, this guy was unbelievable. He didn't just sell me a rug. He sold Seth two rugs before. And this is after he sold 12 rugs to the rest of our group. (laughs) He was on a roll, man. Oh, yeah. And then he gave us the kickback and then he took it back. It was uh, was just like, it was an amazing cultural experience. And I didn't need a rug, right? But But you got one. Every time I walk across that rug, I remember Yusuf and that entire experience and how much I learned and how much I still have to learn about other cultures. Mm. And you are an amazing educator. I mean, you give so freely with all your workshops and all these different um, touch points where people are, you know, the free ebook, the the cloud book, the catalog, the the portfolio, the fine art. Like, how often are you traveling? How especially with COVID? Like, how has yeah. COVID kind of hit you? I know you traveled a lot. Like how much did you travel before and how much are you traveling now? I, I think at most I was traveling a little more than a third of the year. Okay. Know, conferences and lectures at uh, universities and workshops that I was teaching. Yeah. Uh, that was a little much. And I, I got it back to about 25% of my time. Uh, nice. COVID has been entirely different. And I also got back to different kinds of travel as well. Oh? Well, yeah. Um, you know, I, I I do actually really love contributing to other yeah. people's growth. You know, that's, I think that's what makes you a good teacher and you figure out how can I help? And then yeah. if you don't know how to help, then you go figure that out and you become yeah. a better teacher. Your students make you a better teacher. You know, they sure as heck do. Right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, um, there's that old Chinese proverb, which I absolutely love. Um we hear and we forget, we see and we remember. 
uh, it's often been extended. Uh, we do and we know is, is the end of that, but it's often been extended. If you want to become an expert, you write. And if you want to become a master, you teach. I never heard that before. I yeah. love it. It's yeah. a great quote. Right. And I think, can I got, quote you? <laughs> well, it's not me. Absolutely. I mean, the proverb is see, do, but then more recently it's been extended in contemporary circles. So you're going to, you can add in you know, right, right to be teach. an expert and uh, teach Here's to be a master. Hear, write, see, do, teach. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm going to go back and get this transcript and I'm going to be pulling that and putting it up on my wall. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ancient Chinese proverb. Very good one. <laughs> and the other one, may you live in interesting times. Oh, geez, right? Yeah. <laughs> we need to learn how to draw that character. <laughs> I oh, like God. to draw a circle, but we're drawing that character. This <laughs> so, um, yeah, COVID has completely changed my travel schedule. I got back from Antarctica in late February, about a week before they shut everything down. Wow. You know, we were aware and certainly concerned about some of the Chinese tourists who were with us on that boat and Many of the Chinese tourists didn't make it on that boat. Mm. Uh, so um, some of the, the Chilean friends of the company who run that boat uh, at that time of year uh, joined us. You know, we were seeing it hover and then got back and everything shut down. And so I didn't travel and hardly left the house, really, though I've got a wonderful backyard. As you know, I'm tucked into 20 acres of forest on the main coast. And, you know, um, quarter mile away from uh, an inlet I can't see the open water but it's, it's salt water you can swim in it so nice. I'm surround, surrounded by nature I'm also isolated mm. and Maine has been doing extremely well I think mm -hmm. Maine and Vermont have been doing the best in in continental United States right right um, it's just not that many people here um, yeah we're used to being self-reliant yep uh, it helps some of us monks to have this downtime this is the sabbatical of my therapist has been saying that I need for years. <laughs> I'm a toner. I can't afford it. Or <laughs> sabbatical. Like, hey, too bad. And here you go. You can't go anywhere. You got to cancel your print workshops in the summer. Just call I, it maternal leave. Sure. And then, you know, at the end, you have this new baby, this new spectacular. <laughs> um, you know, it's hungry to uh, recharge. Yeah. You give, give, give. And, and you do need to fill up the tank. And I knew I needed to fill up the tank. Um, I had planned to take four to six weeks off the minute I got back just to finish a few projects that I needed to do and just change that. And again, fill up the tank. I was feeling it. And, yeah. uh, uh, I, you know, I got six months before the next event and I've only traveled to uh, Utah in October during this time. Mm -hmm. But it has been one of the most creative times in my life. I've, I've produced. Really? Yeah, I produced almost 200 images. I wrote a quarter of a nonfiction book, took a workshop about that. Uh, took a workshop with uh, Richard Blanco, uh, Obama's presidential inaugural poet, Latinx, Cuban immigrant, wonderful cool. um, You know, I studied poetry and I've always dabbled with it. Haiku has been a long practice for me, but I've wanted to do other kinds of things. One of my 30-year bucket items or you know, end-of-life items that's been on my list for 30 years is to write this one book of poetry. So I wrote it and two others. Um, it's, it's been a phenomenal time to have this great pause and yeah. use it to um, fuel that creativity. And, and again, you know, when we're, when we're doing the things we love, we energize ourselves in a very particular way. Yeah. And, you know, I get energized when I teach, but I'm also tired at the end of the week, you know? Oh yeah. It saps you. 
but, but you love, I mean, to some degree, if, if, if you've inspired somebody, empowered somebody, they go away glowing saying, oh, like, yeah. okay, I matter. I, I have contributed. Um, it's awesome. Right. Yeah, this it is, this is. This is a different kind of awesome. It's this is, I've spoken my truth. I have found aspects of myself. I didn't know existed before. Uh, I've connected things that are important, you know, by making the work, by doing work you know we call it work yeah it's work but it's also deep deep play and it can be spontaneous and, and refreshing and it energizes you in, a, in an entirely different way yeah so i am very grateful that i've had as much time and that it hasn't been more challenging that my family is healthy most of my mm-hmm. friends some of them have been challenged um, yeah. i'm so thankful for what i have because this is a, a really really dark time and and to have this place to retreat to while you're hearing the body count, while you're hearing the case count, while you're seeing mm. race riots, while you're seeing the political system crumble. I mean, wow, has it been hard to keep our head above water, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we and need that creative time, outlet. Yeah. You know, I look out at the birds, I write my poetry, I make my images, I connect with my loved ones. Um, I try and do what I can. I'm thankful mm-hmm. that I can give some things to other people. Um, you know, I'm really interested. So we're talking about educating and this, this is a perfect transition actually into amplifying. So you've had this amazing time to create over 200 images. That's a lot. And I know that's a lot because I know how much you manipulate them. And I know how persnickety, I'm going to use that word, persnickety you are about your printing. I mean, I asked you at the workshop how many prints you pulled, how many color tests you pulled until you got one you wanted. And you were like, oh, I don't know, maybe somewhere between 100 and 200 or something like that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what? You're as Italian as I am. It didn't <laughs> usually get beyond 36. And color <laughs> management has gotten so much better these days. <laughs> right, right. Um, so how do you plan? You mentioned earlier, and I said I wanted to bring you back to it. How do you plan out your goals? Because it sounds like you've created this huge body of work. You've had this wonderful, rejuvenating downtime. How are you going to come out of this um, and amplify? Right. In other words, get the word out, present the work, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, that's the sticking point for so many artists is, you know, I know a lot of artists that are really prolific, but they're not good at promotion. Right. Right. Um, it's challenging. It really is. And uh, yeah, even if you're good at it, yeah, I, I think, I think there are only a few people who are good at it. So good at it. They, they can do it all by themselves. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's one thing for uh, my wife, my friends, my gallery dealers say, this guy's a genius. But if I say I'm a genius, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how does that sit? Right? Like yeah. egomaniac. I mean, it works for Picasso. <laughs> But even Madonna isn't quite that way. You know what I mean? She's Although good, she, but like, she's, yeah, <laughs> she's, she's genius. She's also genius. Um, yeah. She so is I, one I, hell of a coordinator. I, she's, she's brilliant at planning. She's um, I often like to put Madonna and Picasso together because they, they morph brilliantly. They're able to do something new and it surprises us all, but it doesn't seem like it's a completely different thing. It seems somehow related to what they've done before. So it's this surprise, but it's also connected. And they're able to, in addition, not just, that's part of the marketing, the story (laughs) behind that personal growth, not just you're connected and they are, 
not just they've got seniors and they do, not just you're good at uh, presenting yourself and they are, uh, but, but what's going on in their work is A, really interesting and B, the way that they present it and the way that one body work moves into the next is quite fascinating. I mean, it's interesting. Smart. Yeah. 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 I never would connected the two, but now I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah, I'm like that. I was, I once quoted Goethe and Guns N' Roses in the same <laughs> sentences. I just <laughs> cracked the whole audience up. Me too. I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know where this stuff comes from. Random. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, shake it up and see what comes out. Sometimes it's fun. That's the best teaching though. I love when teachers pull in random little tidbits of pop culture with historical culture because it makes it relatable, I think, for the students. Yeah. Yeah. Things come from places. Yeah. Whatever you you do has consequences. You know, I was teaching like an art history class or something one time and I brought up um, for the love of God, you know, um, the skull that's been encrusted with diamonds by um, Damien Hurst. I yeah. And this was a community college. I was teaching to a number of students, a very diverse group from Philly and from rural Pennsylvania. And, you know, to show them this and to say his hands never were on this skull. This is a real human skull encrusted with real diamonds, you know, and to reference pop culture and um, rap with their fixation with diamonds and and to say, is this art? If, if he's never touched it and it's a, you know, and he sold it for how many millions of dollars? Like, let's talk about this. Yeah. It was the largest single payday for any living artist in history. He had gone around his galleries and just had his own solo Christie's auction. Talk about brilliant. Yeah. Wow. Like, I- I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. And, and to have that conversation with 18 year olds and 19 yeah. year olds is, is so much fun, you know, because yeah. they kind of get a little horrified. <laughs> well, some of it is real showmanship and you wonder about the, uh, the depth, the content, the substance of the things that are being brilliantly marketed. And there are art objects that are a lot of hype. And so yeah. how do you separate that out? I think that's one of the crises our culture is having right now mm-hmm. in this notion of um, secular pluralism. I'm okay, you're okay. It's all interesting, man. Uh, how do we make value judgments? Uh-huh. You know, even mm. that, ooh, ooh, value judgments, ooh, right? It's mm. like, ooh, right? right? Because we are hearing so much of that along race lines or economic lines or political lines or, you know, but at some point you have to start making some substantial qualitative, strong quality statements about what constitutes quality, not just quantity. And Otherwise I think- we just reduce ourselves to economic entities and it's just a matter of what sells and what's ratified by institutions that hold less and less authority. And I think that's the job of the artist. That is our role as artists is to help foster and nurture the aesthetic of a society. Yes, but I think it takes the entire society and the society needs to be um, articulate, involved, Mm -hmm. concerned. They Mm -hmm. also need to realize they're a part of that process. And there are other people along the way, the people who write, the curators, the people who communicate well about this stuff, whether it's 
Pauline Kael about movies or it's Wolfman Jack about rock and roll. You know, mm -hmm. we need some people celebrating this stuff in a substantial way and saying, you know, this is good stuff. You know, yeah. once in a while you need to say, ah, oh, that's crap. <laughs> you know, but if you're going to say that, then tell us why, you know, I much prefer the statements that celebrate work and say, you know, this excites me because of all of these reasons. Yeah. Start to find out what's good about the work and then start working in other ways. Yeah. I think we've lost the ability to say that's hype. There's, there really is nothing there. It is a blank canvas. How many times can you do that? I remember going through um, the Chicago Art Museum with my uh, nephew. Uh, I'd gone to see this little Max Ernst collage show and he was, you know, coming with me. He's in his teens and we're walking through the atrium and there's some Ellsworth Kelly stuff on the, on the walls, you know, big orange triangle, round orange uh, green circle. Uh, I say, what do you think about that? And he points to the metal posts that are holding the little wire that's keeping you away from the wall. He says, you mean that? I said, no, but I understand. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> uh, some Ellsworth's earlier paintings are really exciting to me, but the rest of them are just, oh my God, orange triangles, green squares. What's next? Lucky Charms? Yeah, but the little wire is the presentation. That's the perceived value. <laughs> Well, that's part of it. That's Don't touch. Just, it's valuable because we say it is. Right. You know, I think we need to say more than it's valuable. I think we need to say it's valuable because, or here are the reasons why I get excited about this. And did you know this about this work? Yes. Those are the kinds of things that are really good curator or a good writer, uh, a good tour guide. They can yeah. open that kind of stuff up. And, you know, if, as, as younger artists, as developing artists, if we don't find people who will do that for us because we're just not in the system yet or we're not commanding those kinds of prices that we have to learn how to do that ourselves mm. but we could be having those conversations in our social networks we could be having that on our websites there's a lot of places we could be doing that we have more platform than we've ever had before now what do we want to put in that amid so the limited attention span of the global public right now yeah. So how will you edit your content after this long sabbatical and how will you plan to release it? Pulling you back to this amplifying thing. Sure. How you were talking about your planning process. Break it down for us a little. You got uh, all this work, you got 200 pieces. Yep. And what are you going to do with it? How, how are you going to reuse and uh, release that content? How will you edit it? And then how will you release it. Right. So I may be doing things a little more prematurely on one body of work that I've held back for 10 years uh, and finally finished this year. Um, I've been developing those ideas. I have a folder full of sketches. I've got a lot of material in different folders, but I actually executed it this year, got it started, and it's only the mm -hmm. start. And it relates to my Antarctica work. It's called okay. Global Warning, and uh -huh. it just takes climate grief climate anxiety head on i've been kind of avoiding it and trying to do the inspiring get connected with nature beauty transforms and lifts us up with hope mm -hmm. in this dark time i just you know look i've been listening to the younger kids in their anxiety and grief and it's real and i've been repressing it for a long time so like it's time just do it and having this conversation mm -hmm. with my son who's 19 i said like amid covid can i can i really release this climate grief body of work 
He said, mm-hmm. Dad, it's always going to be, it's timeless. It's part of our story. Yeah, you can do that. You go ahead and do it. Um, certain things on my website just delayed me until probably next month, month after. Mm-hmm. January, February, I'm going to release it. It's going to be an online gallery talk. I've already got the video produced. Um, okay. The ebook is inches away. I've, I've kind of already curated that and put it together. So for the ebook, I need 36, 40 images. For the catalog, I need 24 images. And it's a lot mm-hmm. of fun to say, okay, so I've got these 50 to 70 images. Which ones are going to make the cut? What, mm-hmm. what am I going to lead with? I'm going to present it. It's going to be a newsletter. That newsletter goes out to about 16,000 people right now. The ebook is going to be free. You can buy the catalog if you want. I'm not making much money on either one of those. It doesn't really matter. I mm-hmm. make it on the print sales, right? And yeah. it's really just a prelude to, I'm going to be taking this eventually to publishers as well. The Antarctica book, I'm looking to either publish or self-publish. And that's the big question that I've got for this yeah. year. Can I find yeah. a publisher who's really going to do their job and really going to get it out there? Mm-hmm. If, they're, if we're going to be talking about distribution well in excess of 3,000, uh, and if we can really move some copies uh, in the right ways, then fine. It can be that kind of thing. Otherwise, why wouldn't I just do a thousand copies for my audience, you yeah. know, the people who are going to buy it anyway? If I do it with the publisher, that audience, my audience is going to go to that publisher. Yeah. So the publisher has to bring some new audience into this game as well. Not just, eh, it's, you know, we're going to use the spaghetti system method you know the italian method kind of cook the spaghetti <laughs> throw it against the wall See if it sticks if it sticks it's ready if it doesn't well you know next artist <laughs> actually i think that was the honey boo boo method <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sounds about right <laughs> um so, so you anyway. actually keep all of your research materials in like a folder i was just actually doing an yeah. interview earlier and i was talking with a wonderful uh, story illustrator uh, benjamin hummel he's also a professor and um a chalk artist and he uses one of the accordion folders and he puts emails in it for any given project he puts emails and references and blah 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 blah, blah. so you yeah. do something similar yeah. you use an analog system to start yep yeah. and there are um, there are digital equivalents as well but i also like to print them out and just have them in a folder it's it's hard for me to do some thumbnails i'm still trying to train myself to do the quick sketches and drawings on the ipad i can but where do you file those it really helps to have things in one place and that's kind of like that's like a gallery show that's like a book that's like a video it's all in one place and because it all gets together you say oh this stuff is related now i see patterns i see relationships i see possibilities i see gaps you know it's a way to collect that stuff but and then also, you put everything also digitally, maybe in Lightroom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, fo- oh, wow. I love it. You know, I was looking at your website and you have a new video on your homepage. I'd love to point people to go check it out because it talks about all the things you do. It talks about right. your color grids and right. your sketches and how you work in all these, um, what do I want to call it? Not iterations. That's not the right word. Sketches, preparatory explorations. I call them studies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As a painter, we'll do a lot of studies, preliminary drawings, sketches, even preliminary quick paintings before you actually make the final painting. Right. Richard Serra will do this with his sculpture as well. He'll draw some things, he'll do some small mount cats or little tiny Mm -hmm. unfinished sculptures before he makes the big sculpture. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't think that photographers tend to be thinking in the same way. They've got contact sheet, but then you find you select the one that made it. And I don't think we spend enough time thinking about what a study is, what constitutes a study for a photographer. And also you can see that, you know, so Richard Sarah is working in sculpture, but he's also drawing and he's also mm -hmm. writing some notes. He's using words, he's using drawings, he's using abstract pictures before he makes a physical mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So I think as photographers, we can do all of these things and realize that they don't have to be the thing itself. They don't have to be finished. It doesn't have to be a perfect sculpture. It doesn't have to be a perfect drawing. It just yeah. has to be a way of working an idea out. And Thomas Edison, when he's creating things, in order to build the phonograph, he handed his team a tiny little drawing. Because he couldn't just describe it in 400 words. Even if he did, it wouldn't make as much sense as the simple little drawing that he made. The minute they saw the picture of something that didn't exist yet, yeah. they said, oh, okay, this is what we're making. So that may be helpful for us as creatives. So I, yeah. I do that. I, I, I study color before I make the final image that is informed by my understanding of color. My, my understanding of color is deeper, better, more personal, more sensitive, because I've spent some time developing that relationship with color. Same thing with composition and landscape or any number of things. So yeah. I try a lot of things. And developing those studies and those, I have a long list of experiments that I try both photographically and with other things mm -hmm. uh, to teach myself, to understand more, to bring that to the, the final work. And so they that, all go in this collection together. Yeah, to that's actually you... like a separate catalog in the library because there's, there's digital paintings and there's scans of drawings and uh, yeah, that's a separate thing. But also I find the uh, put together an ebook and a, a gallery talk, which is like a video, uh, just mm -hmm. like a flat gallery that you, you talked about the 3D. This was flat, yeah. Uh, but it, there's voiceover now, so you can go click on the little play button below the image and hear what I'm thinking about that. Uh, I love and it, and you've got that deep baritone voice. It's it's so soothing. It's so <laughs> satisfying. Hashtag satisfying. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, it's been very interesting to produce the videos for all of these uh, series. It's not something that I, I, I just dabbled with it. I just tried it one time. And when we produced the first one and I work with uh, my, my last studio assistant, I said, the first, the last two years, the first time I haven't had anybody working in the studio with me in, in 20 hmm. years. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, and actually kind of at the perfect time, because I needed to not be on anybody else's schedule and COVID and to really maximize that kind of quiet time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, CT, Charles still comes in and uh, helps me uh, uh, produce those videos where we just we do it with a lot of, you know, sending files over the net. He's a, he's a great video editor, um, terrific sense of audio. And uh, yeah. he's got a great way of putting the images together. I rarely have to tell him, um, you know, change this sequence because he just nails it the first time out. But it was uh, fascinating. He worked so with me valuable. for Oh, geez. You know, talk about working. I'm looking for other people because I didn't know whether he was still available for a little while. He was really busy with his other job. Um, and it, it, some people were saying, well, why don't you just do it yourself? I was like, geez, <laughs> that's one <laughs> more thing. I probably can learn how to do it in Final Cut, but I'll really miss CT's sense of the background music and the timing and, the, you know, all of that. Yeah. So he, he's still with me, thank God. Um, there, there is a good example of collaborating with somebody with skills and a sensibility that really helps it. The, yeah. the way, reason I was going for that is I never planned to do these videos. They were just uh, trying to see how you would animate the website, make the work stickier, 
But when we finally produced the first one, <clears throat> CT sat back and said, you know, I've been here 10 years and I finally get it. <laughs> so that's really I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well you wonder. Damn it, it took me 10 years to get through to you and you've been editing it? Oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but well, tease. There, there could be several things on that. Um, but I think what 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 happened there is that he made a greater connection with the work because he spent that much time thinking about knitting it together in an intelligent way more to the point there's something very powerful about music voiceover and image all together it's a very oh, powerful yeah. delivery voice and it's not just ct who started to react to those videos other people oh, yeah wow um <laughs> remember my friend mike quinn call up that's some next level shit man <laughs> what yes. do you mean it's just i finally get it <laughs> you know um well we will link to it down below you guys got to watch it they're, you they're know, in a different way, which is really yeah. kind of exciting. And I didn't anticipate doing that. And to make no. the text for the voiceover, I had to take the artist statements that I wrote for those little catalogs we've been talking about making, right. trim it down so I could get it to four minutes or <clears throat> three minutes. I was going to ask if you pre-wrote that because it's so, it's just spot on. It's, it's melodic. It's, it has a sense of poetry to it. <laughs> which I was really surprised when I started this workshop with Richard Blanco, the poet. Uh, he was saying, you know, but I think you've already kind of been writing very poetically all along. <laughs> like, and, and I think poetry has a way of cutting to the essence of things. It's very compact mm -hmm. and uh, forwarding emotions <clears throat> in mm. a really important way. And so to, to let that emotion up well and then add music that will help that well mm -hmm. even further i think it'd be very powerful but yes i wrote that ahead of time and really tried to condense it uh, well it talks about what you do and it talks about these exploratory studies and it really i think it it's it's insightful and it's inspiring and it talks about presentation too you know i just did an interview um with uh david m emmons of vermont and he's um teaching Facebook marketing and he's a crafter. He makes these beautiful hanging water gardens. And um, he was talking about the importance of stickiness, which yeah. you just used that term. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk just briefly? You've been on the web forever. <laughs> you know, do you want to talk about the evolution of your website and stickiness and, and um, how these, videos have helped with that mm. just real briefly i, I don't know <laughs> sure um, some people might want to know you've had a lot of iterations of your website what's it built on uh, what's the foundation of the website yeah nowadays are you using wordpress oh yeah um I don't remember what we first built it with. We converted it over to concrete and we're currently converting it over to WordPress, the art section. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you're going to find all the images and the studies. Um, we converted last year over to WordPress. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, that's built solely on WordPress. Uh, you use my, WooCommerce for the sales? No, we're using one shopping cart for our <clears throat> okay. sales. 
It's a massive website. I mean, if you guys haven't seen it, he's got educational free. You got a ton of free educational stuff. You've got uh, sales of prints. You've got resources. I love the way you tout and tell people straight up to help out with the environment. You know, you're walking the walk and talking the talk. Wait, I think I had that backwards. You're talking the talk and walking the walk. (laughs) Sounds good. Maybe we should turn that into a poem. That's that's pretty good, actually. (laughs) Nice rhythm there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a massive challenge because there's so much information there. Now, how do you get it across in an easy to find way? Yeah. Uh, and, and there's no perfect solution. And it's, it's constantly been a challenge. You know, when I first started the website, um, I had about 5,000 subscribers. And um, I, I told my web designer, I don't want to blog. I just don't have that much to say. <laughs> <laughs> boy, boy, was I wrong. And when we... <laughs> When we finally, when I finally caved in and did the blog, thank you for laughing, uh, it kind of doubled the traffic, you know, and then social networks kind of came in. And if you would, you know, put what you posted on the blog on the social networks, that doubled the traffic again. Okay. All ways of just helping that snowball. But then also, uh, you know, the videos are in response to, I think, the way that people consume information and mm-hmm. um, interact with images has changed dramatically. Uh, the attention spans have gone down. Um, we're just skimming through so much information. You're really competing for uh, people's time. I mean, amid so many possibilities. I mean, yeah. I, the same device that I'm having this conversation with you on, I've still got my web browser. It's got 12 tabs open and there's the email program and all the things that I'm supposed to get. There's a Tempting. lot for my attention, right? So how do you make such a, a strong value proposition that people are going to want to spend their time with you? and keep their attention because while they're watching your video, they're probably gonna get a notification from Facebook or from some email or who knows what. You've gotta make it really compelling. And, and so those four minute videos are one way of addressing that, uh, but they're also a growth point for me. What do I really wanna say? How do I create an arc in that little time? And how do we pick the right soundtrack that's really gonna help grab people emotionally in a way that might've been a much yeah. more passive, quiet, or longer experience. I love those more passive, quiet, longer experiences, but I can't expect people are going to have that on their Apple book. That's probably better for a gallery. Yeah. Or maybe a book, you know, that maybe that's part of the function of a finely printed book and you have your favorite glass of wine by the fireside and you spend some time with something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I love having all those touch points, you know, and having all those options. It's almost like teaching students, you know, some students are visual learners, some teacher, um, some students are auditory learners, some students are hands on, they need to do feel touch, you know, some students need to write it out. Um, Same with uh, people consuming images, they need all these different methods for consumption. How often do you post on social media? Um, I have given myself uh, leeway to not worry about it this year. David DeShemin actually just logged off. <laughs> he read a book called Deep Work and um, he was just watching. He needed to um, manage his headspace and uh, spend more time on, on the creative things that were really fueling his soul and making the most difference, not only in his personal life, but also in his business. Um, so it's, it's really bold for a guy like that who's got strong following um, to uh, kind of check out. I, I generally, I used to post a couple times a day. Um, For a while, I tried at least once a day. And and for a while, the blog, I would post every day. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, right now, it's about once a week. Um, 
I'm really looking at finishing a number of uh, sections of my website. You know, there's a section on sharpening, there's a section on black and white, there's a section mm -hmm. on color. I'm kind of finishing those chunks, having mm -hmm. curated them into a table of contents. And uh, mm -hmm. some of them will become ebooks also, because, yeah. you know, this looking, looking at a blog is different than reading an ebook. Some of them will yeah. become video. They might even become online courses as well. Uh, Very cool. Right. Uh, so I've been finishing those things just in a targeted way. Problem is I've, I've got so much content and so many irons in the fire and so many new ideas coming out. I got, just got to be careful about what I commit to. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I've been sitting and trying to plan for the last, you know, several hours a day for the last three days. Cause this is around the time every year, end of the year, I just take stock and say, so what do you want to happen in the next year? And most of the time, uh, the important things happen. I think it's really important to say, what's the number one thing you want to happen? And make sure that's a priority. Um, you know, and also maybe the top three, mm -hmm. but then realize it's not going to go according to plans. And boy, was 2020 the year to say things are not <laughs> going to go according to plan. <laughs> you know, just not going to happen. But nope. never in my wildest dream would I say, I want to make 200 images. I usually make, I usually release around 50 images, somewhere in there. Right? A year, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is plenty. I mean, that's enough for a book, right? Yeah. That's good. That's a good collection. Right. Strong collection. <laughs> and, so you know, speaking of. I never yeah. would have said, uh, I'm going to write a couple of books of poetry, three books of poetry this year. No way, man. You don't have the time for that. <laughs> right. Well, guess what? You do. So 2020 didn't go according to plan, but there were some really awesome things that happened. And the many yeah. people will say, well, so don't make a plan. It just gets in your way. No, 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 no. I agree with Paul Allen. Planning not to plan is planning to fail. Mm. <laughs> no, sometimes, sorry, that's, that's Benjamin Franklin. Sorry. Sometimes planning the first step is the first step. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that leads us to licensing and contracts and then success. Mm. Do you license your work much? Um, not as often as I would like to, but that's because I don't have an agent going out there and pushing it or I haven't worked with a stock agency. Most people think of me as the fine artist, so he would never which mm -hmm. is not the case. Um, yeah. Uh, so yes, I do sometimes. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know how to read a contract. Many artists don't. Um, my good friend, Seth Resnick knows how to read a contract better than anybody else I know. So oh yeah. Other, other people. Yeah. He's amazing. Um, What's his tips so or tricks? Share us with, share it with us. Cause I mean, this is the section where I like to try and give advice on licensing contracts. We hear all over again and again and again, read them, read them, read them. Don't be afraid to go back and negotiate, you know, talk, ask if you, if you don't understand something, but we try and talk about it in, you know, real English because right. people are so intimidated by these contracts. They're either so excited to get one that they don't want to argue right. and they just sign it or they're so terrified of it, they refuse it or nitpick it. What are your tips or tricks? Uh, if, if you're going to sign the, the boilerplate contracts, um, you really need to be aware of two risks you might be taking. That they might be, huh, I was going to say buying, but sometimes they want it for free. All mm. rights in all known media or any media soon to be invented in this universe or all future universes <laughs> to be discovered. This is kind of the standard Adobe. I love Adobe, but their standard contracts prohibited me from working with them in a commercial way. 
them licensing what? images. I would have let them use because, you know, they've been so responsive. I've beta tested, I've alpha tested, I've helped, they've listened, got a good relationship. Yeah. I mean, you've got like how many of their printers? You're like practically a rep for them. Well, that's Epson and Epson gets it right. Um, okay. This is Adobe with their boilerplate contracts. Oh, they, I'm sorry. They want yeah. All of that. And in addition, here's the second one you need to look for. Number one, there's no point in selling rights for something that uh, they're not going to use. So uh, on, the, on the contract for my book, they were saying, well, then we also want the electronic rights. So you got any plans to make something with it? This was before the days of eBooks being uh, widely distributed. Um, right. They said, uh, well, probably not. So, so what do you need them? They're, they're separate rights. You want to pay for them. I'd be happy to keep them in the contract. Otherwise, take them out. And they wanted the book contract enough to say, oh, okay. You know, it was a separate issue. Um, so you, you need to be careful about selling rights that uh, aren't going to get used because sometimes they get tied up by somebody who's not going to use them. Why wouldn't you be able to license it if somebody else wanted to use it for whatever yeah. it is, right? The, the real thing that you need to watch out for, and we've all gotten used to signing terrible contracts like TOUs on social networks. <sighs> the TOUs for <clears throat> Instagram and Facebook indemnify Facebook can you Should define TLU for? TOU, terms of use. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for, for doing that jargon, right? Yeah, I hate acronyms. <laughs> they well, piss me off because they're so industry specific. You go from one industry to the next and you might have the same acronym and it means a totally different thing. And then I people know. look at you like, oh, what are you, stupid? Because you don't know my acronym. <laughs> yeah. Okay. At any rate, that we signed that have not been tested in at the Supreme Court level is that if Facebook licenses the images that we post in those social networks to somebody else without our knowledge, without ever paying us, and the person who who uses that image does something that's offensive and they get sued, we're liable for that, not Facebook. What? Uh-huh. What? This is why a lot of us logged out. This is why my Instagram account stopped for a while and it deleted all the images. Many of us signed out just before Facebook bought it um, because we were protesting the TOUs. Didn't go anywhere, so everybody's signing and it hasn't held up in, in the federal court. But that's another case of why we need smart people who are copyright sensitive and a healthy culture that will stand up for artists' rights because they right. don't. Australia or other China, forget about it. I mean, as American citizens, we enjoy yeah, a sense of intellectual property. <clears throat> the ability for any creative artist, writer, anybody mm -hmm. who creates something, you know, it's their. Uh oh, John. Yeah. JP. Oh, there you go. I skim the keyboard. You know, Italian, <laughs> so I talk with my hands, and sometimes bad things happen. I once spilled three glasses of wine on Vinny Versace while we were talking about publishing. This Wait a minute, three. Thing. Yeah. Simultaneously or in a no, row? No, in a row. <laughs> it was with Bruce Oops, Fraser. sorry. Oops, sorry. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> what are you talking about, Bruce? <laughs> and another glass of Pinot went that way. You know, I was talking to Bruce, but then he got the brunt of it. <laughs> it's the Italian thing. Yeah, it's the Italian thing. <laughs> so you, you got to be watch about, are you liable for anything? It's unnecessary. And you got to watch for... Are you signing away rights that um, you're not getting paid for? Right. Those, those two things are really, really important. Right. Last letter in the acronyms appeal. This has been an epic interview. Epic. S for success. S for success. <laughs> How do you measure success? 
uh, we as artists, we tend to just hop from one project to the next. We have so much creativity in us. How do you stay focused? How do you measure your success and how do you celebrate it? Right. We have a hard time with that last part, don't we? Uh-huh. Yeah. We just skim right over it and keep going and never stop to take stock of what we've accomplished and pat ourselves on the back a little bit. I really got to answer your first question first. So don't let me come. Don't let me forget that second. Okay. The, the most important thing to do is do exactly what you just did. Ask yourself, yourself, the question, what is success? Define it for yourself. I mean, if you're going into photography or the arts for the money, it's a bad choice. <laughs> so few people really do it. Realize it's a lifestyle. You may live a very rich life with a very lean bank account. Mm. So what is it that constitutes success for you? And do you need the external validation of I sold a print or I was collected by the Museum of Modern Art or I did X, Y, and Z, all of these external milestones. Those are really just things that will fuel the bank account that will help you go to Antarctica or do the next project or you know pay the bills, of course, right? You yeah. need to do a certain amount of that in order to, um, uh, you know, keep living all the other yeah. domestic things. And, and artwork is work and we do get to deserve to get paid for it. Absolutely. And if you're lucky, uh, let me pull back from that. No, let me include that. If you're number one, persistent, I think so many people give up too early. If you're number two, you work smart, which means number three, you're informed. <laughs> you also need to get lucky, number four. But if you stay in the game, that persistence thing at the very beginning of it, you want it so much, you stick with it, or you love it so much, you stick with it. Yeah. Eventually, some breaks will come around. You, you, your breaks are going to come faster if you're clear about what you want. Set intentions, because then you're really, really, you realize those opportunities will, will float by you and you might not be ready for them. You also have to mm. think flexibly, because you know if you're... <clears throat> Look, if my goal was to go to Antarctica, leave me alone. No, I don't want Michael Reichman. Thank you for inviting me in 2005 and paying me to go. No, I just want to go by myself and make my own little artistic body. It never would have happened, right? I went to teach, but I also um, Got to started, make your own stuff too. started an important uh, body of work for myself. Uh, uh -huh. Now I've gone 12 times. We're going to be going on our 13th trip in, in 2022. Lucky uh, 13. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Lucky 2022, right? <laughs> um, you have to think flexible, right? So it's so important uh, to define what success means to you. And, and so part of that is doing some soul searching. What are your core values? What do you really want to accomplish with your life? Now we're at that vision and purpose stage, not so much the project, not so much the separate actions that go into completing that project. And those qualities aren't necessarily attached to external validation. I, I published a book. I, I was collected by this museum. I, you know, all those things that in many cases depend on other people and you can't always control that, right? You can help stack the deck in your favor, but you can't control other people and you can't mm -hmm. guarantee that other people are going to respond the way that you want them to. You can absolutely guarantee that you will do something and that you will do something that means something that's important to you, right? If you identify... Right. Where's your passion? Where's your bliss? What, what do you really want to do? Right? You can do that, right? Yeah. It may not make the most money and you may need to steal some time to do it. It's ridiculous. It took me 30 years to steal these mornings to write three books of poetry. 
<laughs> there's all kinds of reasons, all kinds of excuses we can make. Right. I love the fact that you call it stealing time to make something creative. You have so many people to say that. And you really have to be careful when you take something, your creative life, that's very vital for you, that does have uh, personal value, emotional connection. In some cases, for some of us, and I think for many of us, even if we're not religious, it has a spiritual component, mm -hmm. keeps us alive spiritually. Yeah. So now we're going to tie that to making money for somebody else. Yeah by shooting the latest wedding and weddings are awesome events, but Ugh, uh, so weddings that, are a challenge. Are a real challenge. Right? I've shot a couple. I thought I gave yeah. myself carpal tunnel just from one wedding. <laughs> <laughs> or you're doing product photography. Is that really going to feed your soul? Well, no, mm -hmm. maybe it's going to feed your family. And so you do some of that. I mean, Ansel Adams did portrait work for a long time. Yeah. George Tice did, you know, they took the funny little pony around with a camera and they shoot the kid on the pony for a long time. Really? Yeah. You, what did they call them? Kidnappers. It was the old term. What? Yeah. They were, they were just joking. It was the photographer who went around, rode, rode the pony around, put the kid on the pony and you know, shot the photograph. So one of our top photographers in the history of American photography, you know, they, they do these commercial things and we just yeah. don't talk about that. Right. Right. We don't something. celebrate that, but you've got to pay the bills somehow. So, yeah. but then you still got to make time to do the spiritual stuff. And if you don't, you burn out. Sean yeah. Kernan has written well about this. Sean Kernan's website's great. Um, you know, it, it's, it's linked to my saying I needed to fill my tank up. Mm. And now I'm, now I'm able to give more to others. Right. Now that yeah. I filled me up, it, it, that balance is going to shift on any given year. You just have to be clear about your goals. So define success for yourself. Now, back to the other, I mean, you asked a really important question and I think it's so challenging for us. Somehow we were raised with this notion that we should be our own worst critics. And we do in order to improve our work. We do that work. well. <laughs> we do it a little too well. And we do it <laughs> way too consistently. I, I think it was Natalie Goldberg. I could be wrong. But one of those great women writers, contemporary, said, wrote, you know, if you talked to the person you were in a relationship with, the way you talk to yourself, they'd have left you long ago. <laughs> what happened also to being your best coach? Right. You know, if you can't afford Tony Robbins, do it yourself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, sure. I'd want Tony Robbins as a coach, to be honest. Well, I find him intimidating. Okay. <laughs> He's so favorite. big. Metaphorically big. He is just. <laughs> I think there's a lot to learn from Tony. I think my, one of my favorite Ted moments was when he was giving his Ted talk and Al Gore was in the audience. What? Yeah. What do you do? What do you say? Oh my God. It's, it's one of these brilliant media moments in, in just media, like in the history of media, this is a brilliant moment. So Tony's up there giving his TED talk and yeah. he's talking about how people make excuses. And he does that great Tony thing where he shouts out, you know, you, this, and he gets the crowd to do that. You never yeah, have yeah. enough. And the crowd comes back time. You never have enough money. You never have the right. And Al Gore pipes up Supreme court. <laughs> Just totally derails him. You know, like, and Tony's been up there so many times, like, this is 18 minutes. It's Ted, right? And he's just like, after everybody stops laughing and he stops stumbling, he looks over to Chris, you know, the guy from the whole TED Talk stuff, says, we're going to need a couple more minutes. And he gives Gore a critique. He says, no, 
we were all rooting for you. You were the smartest and the most qualified candidate, but you failed to connect with people. And that's why you lost the election. <laughs> right? <laughs> so here's Tony Robbins critiquing Nobel Prize winning former vice president. <laughs> now, oh you know, my God, that's I'm epic. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you for sharing that with us. At any rate, we, yes, there are times to be critical, but ask yourself always, is this helpful? Mm. Right. And we also need to be better about celebrating our own successes, not expecting other people to do it, not being desperate for that, but being able to say, you know, this is really good. This works for me. I, I, I am proud of this. Do, do that work and give yourself that acknowledgement. You know? Yeah. We need to do that. I understand that people are worried about becoming narcissists or egomaniacs or yada, yada, yada. No, this is this. We've swung the pendulum so far in the wrong way. Mm. We need to do that kind of self-care. And in some cases, that also is the, the legitimacy for, for doing the things we need to do, even though it doesn't necessarily have the biggest paycheck. Mm. Like the thing that I did this year, right, to fill my tank up. I've been teasing my, my colleagues, you know, hey, I found a profession that I can make less money in than photography. Poetry. <laughs> <laughs> <It's like laughs> but I've been talking about making poetic images for a long, long time. And you think uh, you'll, I'm almost scared to ask. I don't want to insult, but you think you'll ever incorporate your poetry into your photography? It's so trendy now to have words, yeah. particularly inspirational words, in imagery, right. um, you think you'll go there? Will you do it? Will you conform? <laughs> Not conform. <laughs> what do you think? Conform me? Really? No, no. no. I'm um, just I'm choosing a silly word. Yeah, yeah, but it's actually a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I've wanted the poetry to stand up without the images, and I want the images oh. to stand up without the poetry. So I'm cautious about publishing them together. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, there, there can be a really interesting synergy. I made a print that was half poem and half image from my dad. Oh, for yeah. His, for his birthday this year. Um, Did he like it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, other people loved it. <laughs> I got one of those critiques. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> um, I've been encouraged I liked to it. put. It was interesting for me. It was just yeah. a good exercise. Yeah. Um, the idea of having text in images has always fascinated me. And I, I wanna do it well when I finally do it. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that I won't do it. You're already seeing many graphic um, Elements. icons, glyphs, drawings, that kind of thing, the drawing, yeah. right? I love there. your incorporation of the sacred geometry type of geometric, uh, I, I love it. Yeah. I took sacred geometry in grad school with Mark Reynolds and mm. fascinating, fascinating mm, yeah. subject. Yeah, really is. Yeah. So something will happen. I don't know exactly how or what. I just have to do the work to find out. I'm really fascinated to see if you go there because, you know, I know I've been encouraged to do that by friends, but I'm so reluctant to label an image with a word and, and, and uh, exclude, exclude yeah. the other meanings that people might come to if it didn't have words. Right, right. I, I think we have to be careful about the words that we use. I think that's one of the reasons why visual artists resist them. 
they feel like they're going to explain away the mystery or, or fix one interpretation of the image. And yeah, if you use words uh, well, it doesn't do that. It opens up windows and doors. If, if you don't use them well, it can do exactly that and be very limiting. So the question is, is it helpful? Mm. You know, one of the things I, I think is also important to ask, we've talked a lot about business tonight. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of artists have a complex about that. That somehow, mm. And it's supported by the culture. I, I remember for years, I have heard the phrase, oh, he's not an artist. He's a businessman. In other words, if you're good at one, well, you couldn't possibly be the other because all artists right. must cut off a certain ear, live an impoverished lifestyle, like be discovered after they're dead. Oh, yeah. Absolute nonsense. And right. It, you Thank don't you. Have to like, look, you don't have to like Damien Hirst, but let's talk about some of my favorites. Bosch, Durer. Durer used new technologies, the printing press, to become one of the most successful artists of his age. Didn't Durer put a copyright statement on his work? Uh, I don't think it was a copyright statement. Are you thinking of the signature he had? No, no. I have a really amazing book called Secret Life of Artists. Yeah. And it's kind of cartoony, but I'll have to I'll have to send you the thing. Yeah, it's actually a little print that yeah. says, um, if you reproduce my work or whatever, you thieves. And it's written in like old English. I'll, I'll dig oh, it really? up for you. It's oh, great. Wait. That would be awesome. I'd love to see that. It'd be like one of the first copyright dis disclaimers. That's it fantastic. Is. It is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there, look, I mean, Charles Dickens was one of the most uh, famous and celebrated and well-paid uh, writers of his time. So is uh, Mark Twain. It keeps going. In many cases, the success fuels the recognition. I feel like we are gifted, gifted mm -hmm. by the work by the sensitivity, by the, the actual activity, the privilege to do this stuff. And, and, and yes, I do think there's some kind of muse out there that helps us along, though I wouldn't say you need that to do the work, but I'm, I'm just saying that, that it is a higher calling and you have a responsibility to be effective with it. Mm. So whatever rationale you have, I, I need the money in order to do the work. I need, I need to be effective in a financial way or in a publicizing way in order to, for the work to be more effective because yeah. I wanna honor the work. However you want to approach it, being more effective at business is being more effective with your work. So don't listen to the chatter that you can't be good at business or that somehow by being good at business, you'll be a lesser artist. Absolutely not the case. In fact, it can be the opposite. Yes, if you let the business run roughshod over all of your creative inspiration, if you change the ideas or the expression because the market is more responsive to it in that way, but it somehow cheapens it or lessens it or makes it more shallow. Yes, those are the pitfalls, of course. And of course, as you're running a business, if you make your creative life your business, you can end up satisfying everybody else's ends and burn out and not be able to do the creative work. There's this beautiful balance, but Business and marketing are the engine that allow you to continue doing the work. And by doing them effectively in your own authentic way, everybody does it a little differently. You can do it in your own way. You find a way of forwarding your voice in, um, well, in your way and finding your way is what this is really all about. So yeah. it's part of the process. I love that idea that marketing can be in your voice. 
I'd never thought of it that way. You know, I think of artistic voice, but a marketing voice. I mean, they call it brand, yeah. but I, I think I like thinking about it as a, uh, a marketing voice. So, but everybody wants authenticity these days. They want something real. They don't want just the same slogan they heard from Coke. They yeah. want to know, you know, what's going on with Aaron? What's going on with JP? Who yeah. are they really? Right. Yeah. So if, if you can find out what your real voice is and deliver that in a confident and effective way and say, hey, this is what it's really about. This is who I am. People are hungry for that. that I want to listen to that. I don't want to listen to the same old jingle from Pringles. Who cares? <laughs> you know, like, right? I'll care about Aaron. And so in that respect, as you see large corporations looking for individuals to tell their stories, we've got a golden opportunity. Just be yourself. Really be yourself get that message across really effectively. You're yeah. going to have to do some soul searching to figure out what that is, but it's going to be tremendously fulfilling. And when it becomes successful, even more so. Yeah. And to that note, when I went through the uh, climate reality training with Al Gore down in Atlanta last year, um, I have to say it was fascinating to see Al Gore 3.0, who's been hanging out with Reverend Barber preaching a little and showing us how to give the 10 minute version of his speech. But the most effective moment was in one of those little breaks where they had this young little, I don't know whether she was eight or 13 year old African-American girl, all backlit, beautiful, with a little bit of music, reading one of her poems. Mm. It was it just so sticky and impactful. Right. Like, like it got you. And I, right. I, I remember Gore's fire and fury. But what I really connected with was this young woman and her future. Yeah. Um, so individuals seemingly insignificant they are not they are so important and we are all one of them so go tell your story brilliant and on that note go tell your story <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> thank you it's nice to catch up with you yes definitely